Putting, 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 kings, kings, kings online, online, online. Putting Kings Online, a podcast exploring the process of designing online learning courses from the team which creates them. I'm your host, Rachel Wall, and in each episode of Putting Kings Online, I'll be talking to my colleagues about their roles here at King's College London within the online and professional executive education team. We'll be delving into the processes of creating online courses, from ideation to delivery, inclusive design, accessibility, and where we stand in the wider online learning community. So accessibility in higher education and online learning has been a hot topic since the government changed web accessibility laws in 2018, now requiring online creators to provide more equal access to their content for those with any disability. For the King's Online team, making online learning more accessible has been a work in process long before 2018, and continues to be a huge part of our development process now. In this week's episode, I sat down with Danielle, our front-end accessibility developer and all-around accessibility champion, to delve into the topic of accessibility within design. We discuss her unique role and its function of looking at accessibility both from a technical and holistic perspective. And we talk about accessible design being more than just an add-on for disabled students and rather a more universal design approach intended to be more inclusive of everyone. One last important thing to mention here is that King's Online is still in the process of learning and improving our understanding of disability. We recognise that conversations like this one don't reflect the full diversity of experiences and opinions from disabled people, particularly given that we focus on the more practical aspects of creating e-learning rather than the direct experiences of students studying online. In this episode, we really try to use language according to what is generally preferred by the disabled community, including identity-first phrasing, while also recognising that different people have different language preferences, and that sometimes we might get things wrong. While we speak in broad strokes about disability, it's important to highlight that not all disabilities are the same, and disabled students have diverse experiences, needs and preferences. So with that in mind, please do visit our website where you'll find some links to resources mentioned in this episode, as well as a few extra that we hope you'll find interesting and informative. Okay, I think that's plenty for me. Let's jump into the episode. Today we are talking accessibility in design and to help unpack this topic with me today is Danielle. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Your official job title is front-end accessibility developer which sounds very technical and very fancy and probably not the type of role I've heard anywhere else. So I just wondered if we could just kick off by talking about what this type of role entails in general, but also what that means within our team. Absolutely. So I think university technology, it seems to be that the job titles are getting longer and more complicated every year, um, especially at King's. Yeah, my job title is front-end accessibility developer, and that really can be split into two pieces. So one is front-end development and the other is accessibility. So for the first, as a developer, I work on our e-learning platform, um, writing some of the code that makes it work. So I'm focused on the front-end, which means that 
that's what's seen by our students rather than the behind the scenes bits like databases or even our bespoke content builder, which is a technical tool used during content development and is managed by Effie, who is our web developer. So I'm also quite focused on the technical accessibility of our VLE. So making sure that it works robustly for disabled students who use assistive technology like a screen reader. So a lot of that is sort of invisible work around structuring code correctly. And that kind of brings me to the accessibility side. So as I say, some of that is very technical and focused on making our platform work for certain devices and tools. But accessibility as a whole is not just technical. It's about making sure that people aren't excluded from using something. So in our case, from using online learning on the basis of experiencing a disability. So that, of course, involves other things besides technical details and involves all different people and roles on our team. So making the platform technically work for assistive technology is only a tiny portion of this. And you could say really not even the most important aspect of it. Um, so part of my job is also to help advise and improve people's ability to practice accessibility across all of the roles in our team. You know, it was a very nice, succinct, uh, what's the word, separation of those two things. Yeah, I think in a role like this, because it's kind of unheard, well, I certainly haven't really heard of something like this in other teams or maybe other organisations, it's it's really useful to have that clear distinction between accessibility as the sort of overall concept versus the process of making things technically accessible and I think hopefully that definition will be very useful for other people to know as well. What does it look like to improve the accessibility practices on our team? You've kind of unpacked a bit the technology, but what other things have you been doing to improve those practices in general? Um, so I think improving accessibility in an e-learning or online learning team is something that I think of in terms of sort of three rough stages. So one is awareness. So the reality is that we've all lived in a very ableist world for quite some time. The world around us is shaped to work for non-disabled people. And it means that we don't necessarily see the ableism that's right in front of our noses. So we often have a picture in our mind of who the student is we're creating a learning experience for. And we've been conditioned to see that person as non-disabled. So we don't even recognize that we're building resources and experiences that exclude disabled people. And this means that even then when we start building awareness and we have a team that sort of knows about accessibility and disability, accessibility is often seen as sort of a nice to have. So it's only included when people have, I guess, time and resource and energy to think beyond that fictional average student. So that kind of brings me to what I see as the next phase, which is strategy. So luckily at Kings Online, recently we've sort of moved past the idea that accessibility is nice to have and an add-on feature, if you like, and started seeing it as a vital aspect to how we work. So it's something we want to ensure as far as we can from the get-go. So we've sort of moved past being just aware of it to taking it seriously and being strategic about it. And this has meant, you know, actually planning how and when we do it. So this year we released our first accessibility strategy ever. We actually look at that and say, how can we make this make sense in the work we're doing? And how can we make it core to how we do work? Um, and that kind of brings me to the final stage, which is professional development of a team. So having a plan and having awareness is obviously really important. 
But as I said at the beginning, a lot of us have loads of things that we've sort of learned and been conditioned to think. So we need help to unlearn some of the ableism we've unconsciously built to the way we do things. And we also need access to like approaches and knowledge and resources that can help us create inclusive online learning intentionally. So I think this is where the more of the practice piece comes in, in terms of helping individuals develop their practice and improve it. So in many ways, we're really lucky in the online space because there are evidence-based standards for web content. So these are called, we call them WCAG, so the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. And they really explicitly tell us how to design and build accessible web pages. And they developed from massive bodies of research and input from disabled users and dis disabled creators. And when we follow these, it means we're including all that research and those voices into our products and our approach. And it also means that we can count on sort of a foundation of accessibility on a web page. But WCAG is like a massive list of guidance and standards. So reading and processing the whole of WCAG is not really practical for every member of our team. It can be like dense, it can be technical. Some things might be really irrelevant for your particular role. So we have quite specialist roles in our team. So if, for instance, you're a visual designer, there may be technical aspects that just don't really matter to you. And sometimes it's really unclear how to apply these things to what you're doing. So, for example, if you're a project manager, knowing the intricate um, standards might not feel relevant to your role in the moment. So that's sort of where I come in. And some of the things I've been working on to improve practice include writing up our own set of standards. So accessible production standards that are based on WCAG and all of that best practice and guidance and research that's in there, but sort of translated to the specifics of our context. So using language that we understand in online learning um, and that we understand specifically in Kings Online that is typical to the way we talk and work. I've also been providing sort of advice and guidance on a more ad hoc basis about how to apply these standards. So for example, WCAG has a standard for color contrast. So you want text to have enough contrast against the background color that it's placed on. So that's great, we have that standard, but someone might need more advice on how they can test that, what tools can they use, or even if there are existing color combinations that we use and that meet our internal brand requirements that also fit this standard for contrast. So that's much more sort of ad hoc, direct advice and guidance. And then finally, what I've been working on um, recently is a workshop series, which um, I've called the Accessibility Is series. And it looks at accessibility from various perspectives that may map onto your, your work and your role. So for example, maybe if you went to an Accessibility Is process workshop, that would make particularly sense to you if you were a project manager or accessibility as design workshop may make particular sense and be relevant to you if you're a UX designer. So we started out with accessibility as design, in fact, because it felt most relevant to most people on our team and because it felt like possibly the most important perspective to cover. As you were talking there, I was thinking a lot about the wealth of information and research and there's so much out there. It's just what struck me over the years in questions around making certain types of content more accessible is just really how we pick that information out, how we unpack it, how we apply it. 
And I think what the series that you've just talked about, the Accessibility Ears series, has done for our team is just really segmented and chunked all of those things into, like you said, bite size and easy enough to understand concepts that hopefully make the approach to accessibility so much easier and feel less daunting and intimidating, which I feel like is the general feeling around accessibility overall. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on applying that sort of information yeah, so I think that's a really good point. Um, one of the things I did when I was quite new to this role immediately is I wanted to get a sense of how people on the team felt about accessibility already and how confident they felt in practicing it. And so I sent out a survey questionnaire and I'm going to send out another, basically a duplicate one um, at the end of March to see if there has been any shift. But one of the things that really struck me is that I included a variety of statements about accessibility and ask people you know, how far they agreed with it um, and what they thought. And one of the most overwhelming responses I got is that most people thought that accessibility is really complicated. That struck me because it was sort of across the board, people who felt they had had some experience with accessibility, people who felt that they hadn't, um, different roles. Most people agreed that they, they felt that accessibility is pretty complicated. And I think there's an extent to which that's true, especially once you start digging into like the really technical side um, and you're trying to think about how to structure code and balance different things. But there's also an extent to which accessibility is in some ways quite straightforward and is just about, you know, creating really understandable and easy to use interfaces. And so I think it's important to recognize that maybe accessibility feels complicated because it's complex, if that makes any sense at all. I was reading an article about this the other day, problem that's really difficult to solve, but there is a solution, a single solution, and it's just hard to get to that solution. You have to do a lot. Whereas something that's complex, um, it has so many different layers of things into it, and it might not have a single solution. It might have different pieces of solutions for different things, but none of those pieces necessarily have to be really difficult, but there's just so many of them and you're sort of trying to balance nuance. And so I think it's useful to think about that because <laughs> particularly when we're trying to productionize something like accessibility, when we think about something as being complicated, we just think that, you know, we sort of have to put our heads down and work really hard until we find that final solution. Whereas when we acknowledge that something is complex, it's more about taking the time to think and make thoughtful decisions and investigate and listen. And I think that doesn't have to be harder than dealing with something complicated, but it is different. And yeah, the, the sort of aspect of seeing that there's different nuances and each role in our team might approach different things is part of that. It's part of recognizing the complexity of the space while it not necessarily being complicated. Yeah, that's a really good point about um, the idea of, of taking the time to really think about something, to really unpack it and to think around a topic. Because I think often when, you know, not just in, in online learning or higher education in general, when we're confronted with the problem, the general approach is, right, here's the problem, what's the solution and how can we just sort of solve it now and then move on? And the thing I think with accessibility, and we talked a bit about this in a previous episode about diversity and inclusion, is the fact that that is so much more complicated and nuanced when you think that uh, the problem that you're trying to solve rather is a very human problem. 
and human beings are complex and we're very different and everyone has a slightly varying set of needs and approaches and there's never really a one-size-fits-all solution But if you're approaching something from this mindset that if I try and be as thoughtful as possible and appreciate that this process is going to change and it's going to need revision and it's going to need coming back to and it's going to need tweaking, then it's something that is more able to become ingrained in our processes and more ingrained in the way we think going forward. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point about sort of some of the agility and being able to absorb new data and listen to new voices and make adjustments while also, I guess, not freezing at the beginning and saying, well, I don't have the full understanding of everything that is involved in being a disabled student and every kind of impairment that a student might have or every kind of access need that they might have and sort of feeling that moment of just being like, well, I'm frozen in this. I don't have enough data. So I just will brush it aside and leave it for now. And instead saying, well, how can we get access to the information that we really need? And what can we use to just really get started and make the best informed decisions that we can right now? Yeah, definitely. And I think I've seen that evolution of a different way of thinking in our team gradually progressing in that direction the more we start to have these conversations. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about what are some of the things that are important to think about in terms of accessibility and design? I guess I'll just first of all run through why I think accessibility is important to frame as design. Um, so as part of the workshop series, I've been using basically a working definition of accessibility that I feel like just speaks to the whole series. and It came from Alistair Duggan, who wrote a blog post about defining accessibility when he was the head of accessibility at Government Digital Services. And he said, when I talk about accessibility, I'm using it to mean that people are not excluded from using something on the basis of experiencing a disability. Accessibility means that people can do what they need to do in a similar amount of time and effort as someone that does not have a disability. It means that people are empowered, can be independent, and will not be frustrated by something that is poorly designed or implemented. And so I think what you can see that that definition has a few different facets, which is why it's been useful in the workshop series. But in a lot of ways, it is quite design focused. So it's about creating something that intentionally includes rather than excludes. It's about making something with a clear user experience in mind and a clear user pathway. And it also really clearly lays out inaccessibility or frustration for a disabled user as poor design or implementation. So it it is really design focused. It's about whether we're actually meeting the design brief and intentionally including accessibility and disabled people in that design brief and in who we think of our user being. So then Al goes on in the same post to say something that I also think is particularly important which is that it's incredibly easy to introduce barriers into a product or a service. And I think that's something that's really important to remember. So in the Accessibility as Design workshop, we look at some of the tenets of design thinking, which is sort of a methodology that goes into a lot of UX design or um, general experience design, service design. And one of the really core aspects of design thinking is questioning. Design thinking is sort of basically premised on the idea that good questions lead to good design. So this, of course, it means asking questions of your stakeholders and your users and your testers, but it also means asking questions of your design. 
So looking at your design and asking if it's doing what it should do and asking if it's doing other things that you didn't expect. So it's really easy to just not interrogate the accessibility of your design. And if you don't do that, you're going to introduce barriers. And if you introduce barriers during design stages, they're really hard to fix later on. So during build or implementation, testing, delivery, it's incredibly hard to fix access barriers that were created during design. And it's very expensive. Sometimes it requires a redesign because it's only been sort of dealt with right at the end. Or sometimes it you know, just requires us to jump through a lot of hoops to get there. And often means that we don't, just don't have as good a final product because we didn't think about it from the outset. But yeah, I think in the end, what this really comes down to is that there's no neutral ground when it comes to accessibility and inclusivity. So we can either intentionally design to include disabled students, or we can carelessly design to exclude them. So I think it's really important to lay that out as a choice that's really a core part of design. And to remember that, yeah, that we're making decisions during design, whether we are doing it intentionally or not. And I think inclusion and exclusion is one of those things that we sort of can sometimes just not ask the questions about, not be intentional about it. And by doing that, we're basically making a decision to exclude. We've talked about accessibility. We've pulled it out of all of these conversations and out of all of these processes. But ultimately, I think from the work that you've done with our team, it's very clear that we're trying to move towards this idea of ingraining it into the way that we think in all aspects of the work that we do, not just in design. We've touched on other different roles and their relationships with accessibility. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts on how we can kind of look at accessibility a bit more, I guess, holistically in terms of that whole process. Yeah, so I think one of the things I said earlier was that the reason that we started with accessibility as design is that it is the starting point and it touches everybody. But I also think that a lot of us do design-related tasks, even if we don't have the job title of designer. So I think there, there's an extent to which giving people a clear way to think about design and to embed accessibility into that does touch a lot of different spaces of work. So even if your job title is a video producer, you know, you're not explicitly thought of as being a designer, but you are making design decisions all the time and they might just be different in size or different in where they're falling in the process, right? But you are maybe making a decision about what colors to use. You're making a decision about um, what to prioritize and the way you're producing something. So I think it is important to also recognize that almost everyone on our team is making some kind of design decision at some point. Even a project manager, for instance, is still doing some process design. So I think that's one way of design is useful because it does sort of provide a more holistic view of what accessibility means for different people. And I think, yeah, this like question aspect is useful for that. So actually recently we're talking about accessibility as design, but we recently ran the second workshop in the series, which was accessibility as quality. And in that workshop, I asked people what they thought defined the quality of our online courses. And one of the responses really stuck with me. And it was that thoughtful decisions were made on how content was produced. So that thoughtful and informed decision-making was like the cornerstone of what we thought of as being essential to quality of what we were producing. 
part of that is like making sure that people have the information to be informed in their decision making, but also that we're equipping them to be thoughtful in the right ways. So actually one of the things I've been encouraging people to do in that question asking that, that I was talking about, where we're like asking questions of our design or I guess asking questions of the decisions we're making more broadly is to think about how to make that question more useful. So the most common one that we often ask when we're designing something and we're trying to be intentional about accessibility is that we might say, how can we make this accessible? So I have this design or this thing, how can I make it accessible? And I've been encouraging people to try and shift their thinking and start asking what barriers are we erecting with this? I think that's really core to design and it forces us to confront design and probably change it. But again, I think it also comes back to that thing of being like sort of accountable and active and recognizing that it's not just about making something accessible, it's about making sure that we aren't creating barriers. And I think it's been really interesting because I've been seeing, I think people on our team really embracing that towards the latter end of the process where you might not expect it. So where you're seeing sort of quality testing and editing or like final build, and you might not expect people at that point to be asking, are we erecting barriers here? But they are. And I think that's really exciting and is really showing sort of a holistic view. I think it also forces you to think about like, what are barriers? What would a barrier look like for a different person? And being really empathetic with what those people need. I'm not sure if that answered your question. but No, no, I no, it definitely did. Um, and I'm just, I'm thinking of something that you shared in one of our workshops, which was an example of someone building, I think like a football stadium or something like that. And different examples of like constructing this wall and then not really realizing when you had a different set of people and what the barriers to them would be in being able to be able to watch you know a sporting event whatever it may be and I just think yeah there's definitely a shift in the way that we question something I guess in terms of of saying rather than like you said what is accessible it's just about changing the way that you ask that question and the way that you question and think about your own decisions in whatever role that you're doing. I'm really glad you brought up the example of the stadium because I think for us working in sort of online spaces, sometimes we can lose perspective of what design looks like. And I find it really helpful to look back at the built environment and what people do in terms of designing built environments. And so that the stadium example you talk about is sort of a fictional example that's used quite a bit to explain inequalities. It basically is premised on the idea that an architect is asked to design a stadium and they design the whole stadium, but they put a big fence up and then they start having users come in and they see that only the tallest people can look over the fence. So that designer really didn't think to ask the question early on about what you know, what barrier this fence was creating. And so now the stadium's built, so the stadium owners then have to sort of do all of these weird add-on things to try and address the inequality. So they start by just giving everyone a small crate to stand on. And that means that like sort of people who are medium height can now see over the fence, but still the shortest people and the children can't. So then they sort of think, okay, well, we'll give the shortest people as many crates as they want and just everyone can choose. And that sort of works. 
But in reality, we know like in the world that we live in, those crates are probably going to cost money. So for people to get extra tools to access something, they're going to have to pay money. And so this then like another financial inequality that's introduced. And then finally, maybe the stadium owner says, okay, we're just going to allow everyone to have the maximum number of crates. So we just give everyone two crates. And that should mean that sure, the tallest person is like way above everyone else, but even the shortest person can see over the fence. And then at that point, they introduce a wheelchair user and they obviously cannot use a crate. So it's just that idea of, I guess, going back to that fictional average user or average student. And that sometimes we design based on that and we fail to think about the full spectrum of human ability, but also that we're just not thinking from the start, what does this look like? What is this introducing? What is this creating? Who could this exclude? And then when we get to the end, we have to do all of these weird, expensive things to try and overcome it. And the built environment is just really useful for thinking about things like that. The stadium is one, as I say, it's an example that's used, I think, a lot in sort of sociology of inequalities to explain different ways that we think about inequality. But we can also think about just like so many aspects of the built environment. There was a sort of a media buzz a while ago about someone who invented this stair climbing wheelchair and it got like loads and loads of media attention and it was really flashy and interesting. But then when disabled people and wheelchair users started looking at that sign and they were like, well, clearly no one ever spoke to a wheelchair user because there are so many aspects of this that wouldn't work. It required core strength or it looked sort of scary. And so they were sort of saying, well, you know, fine, you created this thing to get upstairs. But in the end, why don't you just put a ramp there? <laughs> like, and I think this, yeah, this is like one of the things that it comes back to with the built environment is that often the simplest solutions are very inclusive. And if we just sort of started from the approach of like, how can we make this as universal as possible from the get-go, then we wouldn't have to build stair climbing wheelchairs later. So yeah, I like to say that inaccessibility is failed design completely, but add-on accessibility is really inelegant design. And ultimately, we do want elegant design too. I like the comparison of those two different examples. The first approach is creating all of these add-ons to try and address all of these problems. And then the second one really highlights the importance of actually including people with any form of accessibility needs into those conversations rather than just deciding, I think this is a really cool idea. Or if I was in a wheelchair, wouldn't it be cool if I had this like fancy stair climbing thing? But actually, yeah, like you said, there's often a simpler solution, but also just including the people who are going to need something like that into those conversations seems like such an obvious thing. But a lot of the time, it's the thing that gets forgotten about the most. Absolutely. And I think this is something that we as a team still need to work on. So right now, as I said, we've got sort of a really robust set of standards that have been provided for us from WCAG that has been really informed by disabled people and research. And that's great. And that's useful. And it means that we are indirectly using disabled people's voices to define how we're building things. But right now, we're doing very little of speaking directly to disabled users. And I think that is one of the things that's sort of our next big step is that we need to find a useful way of engaging with disabled students and listening to what they need and listening to their experiences. So I still think, yeah, we have a ways to go there. 
King's College as a whole has a ways to go here, but I'm part of a college-wide piece of work that's happening on trying to help academics who are creating their own online content do that in accessible ways. And part of that included focus grouping with students. And it was incredibly valuable to hear from these students and they were unbelievably helpful. But I also found the process of recruiting students and focus grouping them really interesting and helped me learn a lot from people who are much more experienced in this space. So people who work in disability support or people who've been engaged in disability advocacy and some of the things that sometimes I think we forget when it comes to working with disabled users. So things like, you know, how how to recruit disabled users without forcing them to disclose their disabilities. That was a big thing for students who participate in our focus groups is that they wanted to be assured that they were going to be anonymous and that they wouldn't have to disclose their impairments. So that is a big aspect. Obviously, sometimes we need people to disclose their impairments if we need to like think about particular disabilities. But that was really interesting to see and know and to think about how we can still create systems to get feedback from students without forcing disclosure. The other thing we did was that we paid students for their time. We had massive interest in this, which was really unexpected, but students really wanted to be involved in helping consult about accessibility in, in online content for the college. So we did end up we, are, we had you know, limited funding for a certain number of students to be involved in focus groups. And then we sent out a questionnaire that we said, you know, we can't pay you for this, but clearly there is a level of investment from students in this. And if you do want to fill in this questionnaire, that would be great. No pressure either way. But I think it was really important that we acknowledged that students were like performing a service for us. And I think that's often forgotten when we work with disabled users is that we tend to have sort of a paternalistic approach and we think like, oh, well, we're doing this for you. So you should be grateful that we're listening to your voice. So I really appreciated that we had like a really strong student advocate in our group who spoke up and said, like, we need to pay students for their time if we're expecting them to spend 90 minutes looking at accessibility stands with us and sharing their experiences. Wow, yeah, that's definitely opened my eyes certainly to that process. I think as somebody who is able-bodied who doesn't have any accessibility needs, you know, you do tend to forget that the process of filling in surveys and questionnaires can feel really intrusive and can feel like you're exposing a part of yourself that is a very real thing for you that you have to live with every single day. Yeah, and I think we tend to forget that there's so much invisible work that disabled students do just to like exist as students, basically, in like a fair space. So if you're a UK resident, you can get something called the Disabled Students Allowance, which is basically funding to get you access to the things that you need to study. So that could be money to buy something like JAWS, which is a screen reader, or Dragon, which is like a speech recognition software, or private tutoring if you have a learning disability. But getting this Disabled Students Allowance involves like a lot of bureaucracy and filling in forms. All of these things are work and effort that you're doing on top of just like your normal schoolwork. And so I think one of the things that's really important about 
the approach that we're taking as Kings Online or trying to approach is that we're dramatically shifting away from the idea of waiting for students to apply for adjustments and saying, like, let's look at this from the outset. How could we create something that works in a way that would basically require the least number of adjustments for students or they would be able to adjust for themselves. So we don't want for a student who is a screen reader user to then have to fight for us to provide screen reader accessible content because they're already doing enough fighting for the other adjustments they need, like exam time, et cetera. So yeah, I think it's it's also worth remembering that there's all of this invisible work that we don't see happening and anything we can do to sort of create as a universal learning experience up front will benefit those students and like minimize some of that work. And also it means that the students who cannot do those things or like will not or don't even have, I guess, disability that's registrable. So they don't have like a diagnosis that they can still get access to like these aspects of accessibility that they might not have had access to if we required a diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the other thing as well, like you were saying about all this extra work that they're already having to do to kind of make their studying work with whatever disability they may have. It's just the idea of online content being a space where, you know, we rerun the courses that we do, we make tweaks and, and changes along the way. But the importance of that universal approach, like you said, means that A, we're not having to change things or make significant changes to people who are coming forward and saying, actually, this isn't accessible for me or I can't access this. But it means that it's less work for our team so we can put more time and energy into developing practices rather than just playing defense in some ways and thinking, right, we've got more time now. What more can we do? How can we make this even more accessible? What new things can we try this time rather than that kind of constant like, okay, well, we've done the base level or we've done as much as we think we can. We can kind of claw back some of that time to think even bigger, which hopefully in the long run would be more inclusive, not only for students who have accessible needs, but for everyone really. Absolutely. I think accessibility has a really strong business case. It is much more sustainable, as you say, to design in as accessible a way as possible from the outset instead of making changes later, which is always expensive and always frustrating, I think, but also incredibly difficult to do quickly enough to be useful for students who need accommodations. But yeah, also it tends to create a better product for all. It gives us like a marketing edge, I would say. So when we're able to recruit students with access needs, that's like a whole additional market. In business, they call this like the purple pound. So they talk about how if you have inaccessible businesses, you're losing out on like a massive customer segment. And I think that's true. When we're thinking about business and universities, that's still true. We need to be able to access that segment of customers and recruit them as students. And particularly because online learning should be in some ways really attractive to disabled students. One of the reasons that I got into online learning and I wanted to work in online learning is that I felt like it really opened the doors for different people to be able to access higher education. You didn't have to have like a very specific lifestyle to be able to do it if you could learn online. You could be living anywhere and you could be working at the same time and you could have caregiving responsibilities. And there was just all of these kinds of flexibilities. And one of those things is that if you're disabled and it is more difficult because of your disabilities to go onto campus or to work on campus effectively, 
online education is a really good option or should be a really good option, you know, from a business case point of view, as well as I guess, like from my own sense of passion about what online learning is and should be, you know, we should be reaching out to disabled students and recognizing that this is something that might be particularly appealing to people with certain disabilities. Yeah, definitely. 100%. Um, And I think that that is a very nice place to end it. Thank you so much for uh, giving up some of your time today to have a chat with me. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Putting Kings Online. Subscribe, rate and share us wherever you get your podcasts. Putting Kings Online is hosted, produced and edited by me, Rachel Wall and is a production brought to you by the online and professional executive education team here at King's College London.